Are you creative? That's a rhetorical question, because of course you are. A creative is anyone who makes something from nothing. Creativity is everywhere and in everyone. And that means you. So what's been stopping your inner creative from bursting out? Probably fear. Fear is part of creating something. It's a real bee. But don't worry, we'll help you get through that. This podcast will be your guide to claim your creativity, redefine your relationship with fear, and build a new life centered around creative expression. You're going to learn tools from people who have found ways to manage life's ups and downs by turning their experience into purpose. Think of this podcast as your very own creative community. This is Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. Hello, it's Lauren here, and I'm back with another creative check-in. And this one is all about the power of asking for what you want. This is something that actually is touched on a lot today in the conversation I have with a guest, so it feels very applicable, but also it's something that I directly experienced this week, so I'm excited to tell you about it because, you know, we all have, I don't know, I shouldn't say we all, some people are probably awesome at asking for what they want. I personally am still working through how to do this most effectively. I've done it a couple times, but it still felt very foreign and I got what I wanted. So I should probably just like get over myself and start doing it. But, you know, a lot of the times the things that I talk about on the show, I'm talking about because I'm on that same mission with you. We're all growing and learning and really figuring out how to unleash our inner creative and get rid of fear. I came to... LA from Michigan with my mom because as you know my grandmother passed away a couple weeks ago now and my mom was her primary caregiver so for some extra healing and getting to spend some time with me she came back with me to LA and this past weekend we were at this place called Creation which is a delicious juice bar and they have food and it's a very LA-y spot but if you ever come here I highly recommend you go there it's delicious but anyway we're at this restaurant and it's like one of those ones where they have pre-prepared stuff. So you bring it up to the register and we you buy it. And my mom was going to pay. And the lady ran our card for us because the little chip machine wasn't working. And then there was an option on the next screen for tip. And my mom just hadn't seen it. There was an option for like 10%, 15%, 18%, 20% or no tip. And the lady who was helping us punched in no tip. Without even checking, she just assumed that we wouldn't want to give a tip because, you know, we didn't really have anything made. But we we had sat there for a few minutes and asked her lots of questions. And I mean, if it were me, I probably would have given at least a dollar or two. I think my mom, she's wildly generous, probably would have given like three or four dollars. And it was just a really good reminder to me that sometimes not only would it not be a problem to ask, but people want to be generous with you. And that by not asking for what you want or even asking if somebody would want to help you out, whether it's for a tip at a restaurant or for a raise or if somebody would come to your concert, you're not only cheating yourself, you're cheating that person and not allowing them to be as generous as they might want to be. I mean, she kept us from showing her some generosity for the time she had taken to explain the store and the different products that we'd bought. So so my takeaway, and it's very simple, is 
don't be afraid to ask for what you want because first of all, you deserve to desire what you desire. And second of all, if you don't ask for what you want, you're shutting someone else down from the opportunity to be generous and supportive, which I feel like maybe not nine times out of 10, but I'd say more often than not, people do want to be generous. So give them that opportunity. All right, now to the guest. Ben Nemton is a number one New York Times bestselling author, public speaker, producer, and TV personality. Best known for the hit MTV show, The Buried Life, his TEDx talk, his book, What Do You Want to Do Before You Die, and for being named one of Global Guru's top 30 organizational culture professionals. In the mid-2000s, Ben was living what many other kids his age probably felt was an ideal life. He was playing rugby on scholarship at a great university. However, on the inside, he was crippled by anxiety, so much so that he eventually dropped out of school and became incredibly depressed. While this was one of the darkest periods of his life, through baby steps, he was able to turn it around and transform pain into purpose. With help from his friends and the wind of the universe pushing him along, he created what eventually became the MTV series, The Buried Life. In this series, he and three of his childhood friends attempted to cross items off their bucket list. And every time they accomplished one of their dreams, they also helped a complete stranger cross something off their own bucket list. That's when I first experienced the ripple effect, which is that when you do what you love, you can inspire other people to do what they love. And that ripple effect goes far beyond what you'll ever know. Like it's not a tangible, well, it is tangible. It's hard to measure. And so you, you, you inspire other people by, by triggering them. Along this journey, he and his friends did things such as play basketball with President Barack Obama, reunite a father and son after 17 years, and they even appeared on Oprah. His journey has been impactful and inspiring to say the least. These days, he shares his story via public speaking to help people overcome fear of failure, go toward their dreams, and break the stigma of mental health. Some of his speaking clients include Amazon, Amex, Microsoft, Verizon, Harvard, and even my dad's company, Lincoln Financial, which is how I met Ben. We'll get into the details of Ben's story, which is inspiring in and of itself, but the main reason I wanted to have him on is that we are united in a similar mission. Ben uses his voice to help people realize they can achieve their dreams, that they aren't alone, and to destigmatize mental health. He has great actionable tips on all of the above, and I can't wait for you to hear from him. From our conversation, you'll learn the key action steps to achieve any dream, the best way to maintain creative control when working at a large company, how creativity and mindfulness can help those dealing with depression, why it's important to both ask for and give help, and the power of being young, dumb, and broke. Now here he is, Ben Nempton. You're so interesting for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is the inciting incident of your story was brought on by a tremendous amount of pain. You were in college, you were playing rugby, you found yourself crippled by anxiety, and what could have been a moment that was a huge failure turned into your life's purpose. So can you walk me through that moment and what you would advise other people who are in similar situations? I had a scholarship to a really good university. I had I was on the national rugby team. Rugby in Canada is like third biggest sport behind hockey and hockey. So you know my my high school coach was the ex national coach. So I pl- played rugby from a, from a young age, and 
And then we were training for the World Cup, which is in France. So I'd practice my field goals every day. And and I got this thought in my head, which was like, man, what if I miss an easy field goal at the World Cup? And what if I totally blow it? I mean, my thoughts, these thoughts would definitely come at night. And so they caused me to kind of be unable to sleep. And slowly I started slipping into this depression. And the depression was caused by, you know, a, a number of things in hindsight. I mean, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I this lack of sleep was really difficult for me. I ultimately realized that I was playing rugby for the wrong reasons. Like I was doing it to be cool. I was doing it because I wanted to belong, but I didn't love the pressure. And so I ended up dropping out of school, getting dropped from the rugby team. I became a shut in my parents' house. I was unable to really leave. I was crippled by indecision. I couldn't make little decisions like, should I go out to my friend's house or not and I would end up just not making a decision and not going so slowly this kind of just digressed to the point where I really was kind of shackled in my parents house and I would I would just go for a 15 minute walk every day and sometimes I wouldn't even go for the walk I would just tell my parents I had so I didn't really know what was happening and I you know and my parents were trying to help and they didn't really know how to help ultimately what happened was I went I ended up going away that next summer because my friends had sort of convinced me to come work with them in a new town. So I went away with them. They kind of encouraged me to come with them. And, and I went to work with them in this new city. And, and, I, and I slowly came out of this feeling. And there were a number of things that contributed to my recovery. But I immediately felt a little better because I got a job. So I felt some self-worth. You know, I I started talking about what I was going through to my friends, you know, about what I was feeling. And I met young people that were really inspiring. And so I realized that I could, if I chose to surround myself with people that inspired me, then I could by default kind of lift my mood because if they gave me energy versus take energy, like I, I, I come out of high school, now I could choose who I surrounded myself with. So, and so I, I, I kind of came back from that and I thought, wow, I'm going to see if I can do this. And ultimately it was a kind of an active thing that I was reaching out to people that I thought were, check that box of being inspiring. And, and one of those kids was a, was, a, was a local guy from the neighborhood who made movies, and he made movies around the neighborhood. And so I'd always wanted to make a movie, and I kind of called him up. I said, you know, Johnny, let's make a movie. And that's when The Buried Life began. In many ways, it, it started from this really low, incredibly low. I mean, it was the, the most terrifying time of my life was that depression. I just, I, my fear was that it would just, continue to get worse and worse. And so I ended up finding someone that I could talk to regularly, you know, like a therapist. I, I learned what I needed to be healthy, proper exercise, diet, also just taking breaks, you know, I just overworked myself a lot. And so mm, I feel I th- that. Yeah. So I think I think like a lot of it was was learning who I was and what I needed. And ultimately creativity, oddly enough, was was something that I I I absolutely need in my life to stay mentally fit and I find when I when I suppress that I I get in trouble and and usually it's because I'm overworking on something else and I I just don't have time and so for me buried life was a creative outlet that I was able to for the first time really express and ultimately brought me I mean not just you know a bunch of fulfillment but completely changed the direction of my life Right. I mean, I think that's so powerful because part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast is I came to the realization that some of the world's greatest suffering comes from repressed creativity. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just powerful that that really was you're out from that darkness. Another thing I noticed you said was you really stair-stepped your way up to it. It wasn't like you're like, I'm going to be, you know, make this viral sensation. You first started by taking a 15-minute walk. And I think that's a great piece of advice. It's like, start small and give yourself props for starting small because when you're in that kind of state, it's something I've battled with too. A lot of people listening, I think every creative person deals with anxiety or depression on some level. I, everybody, yeah. yeah, period does. Yeah, I mean, especially go, now. Yeah, everyone will go through some sort of mental health crisis in their life, whether it be stress, relationship-induced, you know, bereavement, or mental illness. It's just kind of what happens to humans. This mm-hmm. is sort of our the nature of, of the ups and downs that we are faced with. I think first and foremost, that's really important to understand that it's not abnormal to feel like this. In fact, it will happen, and that's comforting in the sense that you know, that means you can reach out to people for help because you know that they're going to be in that place at some point as well. They're going to, you're really opening the door for them to reach back out to you in their time of need. And it's just way scarier on your own. And when you're on your own, you feel alone and trapped. And when you're trapped, you might do something desperate. And that's really, I think, why so many people end up taking their own life is because they just don't, they feel like they're, there's just no other way. And they don't have anyone to talk to or relate to or, or they don't feel like they can, reach out for help and what I've learned is that it's just is absolutely happening everywhere the person sitting next to you has gone through something you know the person you think is perfect is struggling with something or has gone through something the people that you look up to all have to get to where they are and that's okay like that's just the Buddhist is like to be to struggle is to be human um, and that's how you learn about yourself and that's how you ultimately can teach others is by showing that vulnerability now, it's not easy but it it really is at least comforting to know that you know you're not you're not kind of going down this completely completely alone and so yeah so this, this so this creativity was just it was supposed to be a two week road trip and a movie that we put together for our friends and screened in the neighborhood and you know 12 years later still doing it <laughs> That's pretty phenomenal. So how did it go from a little movie that you filmed in the neighborhood over two weeks to sitting on the couch with Oprah to playing basketball with Obama? How did this all start to unfold? So as soon as I called Johnny, he was said, you know, I was just talking to my friend Dave about something like this. And I knew Dave because he grew up in the neighborhood. Yo, Dave. Yeah. Dave is, <laughs> uh, he was two years younger than me in high school. So I was like, I know Dave. We all know Dave. We all know Dave. Little Dave. <laughs> Davey. Davey Spice. And so I was like, I know Dave. And I, I was like, I'm going to call your older brother Duncan. We should all talk about this. So we did. We got on Skype. They were in Montreal. We were in Victoria, Duncan and I. And we're like, yeah, what are we going to make a movie about? And we came up with all these ideas and they all fizzled out. And then Johnny's a, gets a, a sitting in first year English class at McGill University. And the teacher assigns him a poem. It's a 150-year-old poem called The Buried Life. Basically, the poem was talking about the same feeling we were feeling, but we were having trouble really articulating, which was we had all these things that we'd always wanted to do. We had never done them because they were buried. And we had had little moments of feeling inspired, but ultimately that would eventually get buried by the day-to-day, work, school, whatever. So... We thought, wow, this 
guy wrote this poem 150 years ago in his 50s in London, and he's articulating this same feeling. We're probably not the first people to feel like this. So we decided we're going to take this name, The Buried Life. We're going to call the film The Buried Life, even though we don't know what the movie's about. So from there, we thought, okay, how do we unbury these dreams that we had? And we came up with this question, what do you want to do before you die? And we, we just pretended that we could do anything. You know, if you could, if you had $100 million, if you had the ability to do anything, what would you do? And we all wrote a list. And we came together and we put together this sort of master epic bucket list. We thought, why don't we go after this list? And then every time we cross something off our list, let's help someone that we meet along the way do something and accomplish something on their bucket list. So we would just ask people, strangers along you know, the side of the road or on the bus, what do you want to do before you die? And if we could help them, then we would. We thought, well, we'll just take two weeks off our summer jobs before we go back to school and go after this list and help other people. And so we like threw parties to raise money. I would cold call companies out of the phone book, pretending we had a production company, sell them on our documentary idea. And then you know, a juice company d- paid for our gas. We had like gas covered. We had money from the party. We bored an RV that the mechanic said would not make it back after two weeks. You know, we made four matching t-shirts that said the buried life on them. We made a website with our 100 dreams. We worked two summer jobs leading up to that two weeks so that we could uh, buy a camera on eBay. And we're going out on the road for two weeks before we go back to school in 2006 to cross things off our list and help other people. As soon as we hit the road, there were a couple things that happened. Number one, strangers started to hear about our mission and they saw our list online and they would reach out to us and be like, hey, I saw number nine on your list, ride a bull. My uncle has a bull ranch. He can get you on a bull. (laughs) Or number 41, make a toast to strangers wedding. My buddy's getting married. I can get you in. So like got invited to 12 weddings in two weeks. Wow. Did you go to all of them? We didn't go to any (laughs) because we were so... Well, we were just in different places. Oh, got it. We ended up crossing that off like three, four years later. And then the other th- thing that was surprising is people would send us their dreams asking for help. Mm. And then people were also getting inspired to start their own bucket list. That's when I first experienced the ripple effect, which is that when you do what you love, you can inspire other people to do what they love. And that ripple effect goes far beyond what you'll ever know. Like it's not a tangible well, it is tangible. It's hard to measure. And so you, you, you inspire other people by, by triggering them. So we thought, well, we got to keep doing this. And, and so this first two weeks was just kind of this whirlwind. It was national news. National in Canada yeah. and America? Or? Just Canada. Hey, still just, good. We're keeping it pretty tight in Canada <laughs> at this point. Long story longer, <laughs> a producer saw us on the news. said, have you guys ever thought about making a TV show? We get offered a show in Canada. We end up turning it down because they want to own it. And we want to just continue to make our documentary. Well, that was a bold move. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it's... How did you decide to say, no, we want this intellectual property? Because I feel like a lot of people in that case would have caved. That was bold. Well, you know what? Being young, dumb, and broke is very (laughs) underrated. Um, We didn't even know what intellectual property was. What, you know, but we definitely understood the the meaning behind keeping control of what we were doing because Mm -hmm. it was just working for us. We didn't want to lose that, right? Like this is the first time I'd ever felt any type of meaning or purpose and I felt really alive and and we knew that we were going to 
probably lose that if we sold the show. You know, they were going to bring in another cast member, you know. And so we just thought, I don't know, maybe we just go back to school and keep doing this on our own. And I think that if it was a couple years later, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have done that because I think there's a lot of power in, in that naivete when you're young. If you're able to hang on to that, I think it's a quality. Like being young, dumb, and broke, I feel like is that mindset. Like you're you're young, so you just have like this relentless energy. You're dumb because you don't know any better, right? You're not listening to people that are telling you no. Where over time, you just get so many no's that eventually you just start listening to them. You're worn down. Yeah. I mean, when you are worn down, how do we get back to that young, dumb, and broke lifestyle? How can we trick our brains into thinking that way again? We try and surround ourselves with people that are also thinking that way because it becomes the norm. And we just sort of take small steps towards those things that we think are unreasonable. And over time, you know, we actually see progress. But it's it's a, it's a really tricky thing to tap back into because it's it kind of dies a little bit. I'm trying so hard to brainwash myself right now. I mean, I am doing meditations every morning and my my affirmations and I'm saying this prayer called the prayer of Jabez. I don't mm. know if you ever heard of it, but it's supposed to be a really powerful prayer that helps you manifest. And I mean, I get there, but then I have these moments when it's just like I'm brought to my knees again. Mm-hmm. And I just want to get back to my sixth grade self that was like walked into the guys and dolls audition was like, I'm going to be Adelaide. And bam, I was because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a really interesting thing and something to keep working on. Like, how can we get back to that younger mentality that just had it? Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing to maintain and really believe over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that we got really lucky in the beginning by just simply not knowing any better and just continuing to have this inherent belief in what we were doing where we just, it wasn't an option and we just knew that it was something special and we just continued to, we just had this really big dream of MTV America, you know, like coming from Canada, it was just kind of, you know, 2007 now. And we thought if we're going to do a show, like let's do it our way. And, and so we turned down the show and we went back to school and everyone thought we were making this huge mistake and we fundraise throughout the year to go out again the next summer, continue the mission to go after our list. And this is before crowdfunding. You were doing this all on the internet, throwing parties, calling people. Kind of pre-internet. I mean, yeah. social media just started to bubble up. Like MySpace. We, yeah, it was, it, was, it was MySpace. It was, you know, Facebook was just in colleges. Twitter just, we just got Twitter in 2007. YouTube, we had like, one, one of our big breaks was like we put our first trailer on youtube and it made the front page of youtube in 2006 and we were able to fundraise we we just approached companies we raised fundraised a lot of money to be able to buy an old transit bus hire a crew from la for two months the next summer and go out on the road so and we, you're like 20 at this yeah point. we're 20s i'd like kind of sort of like deferred some school and you know we borrow like we got office space donated to us people would literally like we were like on, like on food programs, like local restaurants in Victoria would give us meals, like lunches, you know, everyone was kind of rallying behind us. We were waiting for our visas to get approved so we could travel to the States. And finally, you know, I got into the business school and I had to not go, you know, cause I, it started September 1st and we didn't get our visas till late in the summer. So, you know, we ended up doing our two month road trip into the fall 
And again, as we traveled, just all these things that we had thought originally were kind of pipe dreams, these list items started coming to fruition. And this real magic started happening where, you know, it was just serendipitous, like the way people would help us help other people. And so we were filming the documentary. After two months on the road, we came back and we were excited. We had all this amazing footage and we're like, all right, let's put together this documentary. (laughs) And then we realized how expensive post-production is and there's no place to sell it in 2007. There's no Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, these types of documentaries. There wasn't really a market for them. And maybe we got into, you know, some festivals and became a darling, but First, we had to finish it. <laughs> and <laughs> that so, little thing. <laughs> and so then we hit, I just, it was like another rock bottom where I moved back to Vancouver. I was a bartender. I didn't even know how to bartend. Oh, it's just like rough. It was brutal. I just <laughs> you was, gave everyone a vodka tonic or whatever. <laughs> like smashing glasses and like asking how to make martinis to people that asked me for a drink. How and, do I do it? Question When you're in that moment, because obviously you went on. How did you know that it was just, I don't know if you're spiritual at all, but like God or the universe testing you to make sure you really wanted it versus time to give up, buddy? Because I think there's always that moment of decision. And I do think sometimes it's just a test and sometimes it's a guidance that you're supposed to reroute. Yeah. It's a very nuanced thing. But I'll tell you what made a a major difference was that I was surrounded by these three other people that when I felt like it wasn't going to happen, they picked me up. When they Mm -hmm. felt like it wasn't going to happen, I picked them up. And so to be able to work with your friends that really also believed in what we were doing, the collective belief was just stronger, bigger than any one of ours. So that helped. It was also kind of like taking leaps of faith when there was opportunity or potential opportunity. So what happened was I drove down to the Baja with my parents and it was Christmas time and my parents had met a couple and and they had a daughter that was older than me. And so we ended up hanging out and I showed her what we were doing and I showed her this video that we had made. And she was like, whoa, this is like pretty cool. Like if you're thinking about doing this in Canada, you should probably check it out down in the states and i was like oh okay sure like what whatever that means and she's like she worked as a writer so she and you know how how it is in la like everyone has kind of friends in different at least some friends in entertainment right sure so she's like oh just come down and i'll introduce you to some random people and she literally gave me a buddy pass which is like a free you know flight oh my god victoria to la and I flew down and I met a couple people and everybody, random like manager or like someone from anonymous content. And, you know, it was just kind of, I was like, whoa. Everyone was like, oh, you know, let, let's, let's do this. And I came back, the guys, I was like, I think there's something here. And so I just started doing trips down to LA. And over a year later, we partnered with a production company in LA and then we pitched networks and MTV and ABC were interested and then we ended up going with MTV because of they were going to let us make the show we wanted to make Johnny the self-taught filmmaker cut our own pilot so we could like really just show them the show that we wanted to make and I mean I just 
hustled down here, learned the business, started to understand what you needed to sell a show. And what is that? Well, it's a really good (laughs) question because it's it's changed. But really what you need is at the point that we were at, which was a couple of kids with a good idea, and you need to make it yourself if you can. And then you just need a really good partner. Like you need to find the right production partner because a network won't buy a show off a couple random people. They will buy a show off people that have delivered them shows before on budget with line producers they trust and stuff like that. So we continually kind of fought to get ourselves in front of the right production companies that we respected. And finally, we were able to do that, partnered with them and pitched it to networks, made the pilot with MTV with the stipulation that when we sold it, we were going to be executive producers. We were going to hire our friends as the crew. We were going to choose which list items we went after. They couldn't help us. MTV couldn't help us with anything on the list. And we were also going to help someone every episode. And the, you know, basically we were going to edit it and choose the music. (laughs) So you went into them and you said, Hey, we're going to do all the work. Just give us a little bit of money. Yeah. That's a pretty compelling argument. It it was, (laughs) yeah, it, it, it definitely, that was the, that was the undertone of what we were saying because mm-hmm. we had we had a full pilot done that we showed to them before we even made the, their pilot. They were going to s- sort of put to focus groups. And the reason that we went with MTV was because the president of the network, a guy named Tony DeSanto, who had been at MTV for years, he just understood what we were doing and like the kind of the magic behind it. And so, you know, but we would send our own edits to the president of MTV after the episode was actually locked because we'd been on the road and it wasn't good. And so we had to like edit episodes out of our own pocket, send it to Tony. And ultimately he, he was like, okay, let's use these. And we built a really good rapport, but you know, it's, it, it, it's instead of like telling people what you're going to do, you really just have to show them mm-hmm. uh, and I agree. do it. And so, so that's, so that's what we did. And we already had proof of three years of doing it on our own, that this was really working. So yeah, so then we just drove this stupid bus down to LA <laughs> that we lived in pretty much. And I guess we were like, okay, I guess we're making a show. And we had this production company partner and they were like, okay, great. What list items do you want to do? And we said, well, we want to crash the red carpet and ask out Megan Fox at the Transformers premiere. And they're like, okay, cool. We'll call ahead and, and clear it and let them know that we're going to be filming and coming down. And, and we're like, no. No, no, you, no. Like that defeats the whole purpose. We're gonna, <laughs> we have to do this real. And they're like, well, that's not really how reality TV works. <laughs> and we're like, well, we're not doing it if we're, if, if, if you guys set it up for us, that's the whole, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It, it defeats the whole purpose of what we're doing. It's like, this is like, how would four regular people go about doing these things? And so the first, you know, episode, we had to prove it on our own. And we actually like crashed a Playboy Mansion party in like full dressed up like Oompa Loompas and giant prop cake and got in and shot the episode and ended up having to, at the end, get permission after, which they wouldn't give it to us. And we ended up, wrote Hugh Hefner a letter and he saw it and he ended up giving us permission. I mean, it's an outrageous example, but (laughs) like, you know, everything that we we were doing, whether it be like strand, like... We, we got stranded on a deserted island or, you know. Is that on the list? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was, um, or, or, or just like the helping reunite a father and son after 17 years or, you know, all these things were just super real. There was just, it was just intense. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it. Now you kind of spoke to it, but just to get more detailed information, a lot of creatives end up working for someone else and it's great because that brings full-time employment or it helps them take their project to the next level. But how do you make sure to stay true to your creative vision when you are partnered with a bigger entity? One of the ways that you can try is to be really open and upfront at the beginning and let them know what you value, the way that you work. And I think that that just helps from the beginning set at least a bit of a precedence, whether that ends up meaning anything or not, at least you set it in the beginning. And ultimately, I think it's it's just, as I said before, it's doing rather than talking. You know, if you have to stay late, work extra to make the thing the way that you think it should be made, at the end of the day, that almost has to be on your own time because they're asking you to do something that you, you know, have to deliver. But like us, we delivered it and then we went above and beyond and made it our way and said, look, can you just watch this versus having me convince you and then you take a risk and then like the risk is should be on you, whether it's your investment in time or your money that you're coming out of pocket you just have to prove it yeah but it's it's not easy once you get kind of put into this corporation and and sometimes you find you just you need to break off and do your own thing aside from a side hustle your main thing i think that it's ideal if you can make a living by doing what you're really passionate about but it's not essential What's essential is that you take time to prioritize the things that are truly important to you. And if that thing happens to be how you make money, that's great. If not, that's fine. Just make sure that you carve out the time to do the things that you truly want. And that's really one of the underlying lessons that I've learned from The Buried Life is that a bucket list is, on the surface, kind of trivial, right? It's just sort of all right, whatever, I've heard of a bucket list. Like, there's a movie about it, and great. <laughs> but at the end of the day, a bucket list is, is just a list of the most important things to you in your life. So the things that you believe will bring you the most joy, happiness, and fulfillment. Now, the list itself is just a device so you don't forget about them. Because if you don't have something to remind yourself of those things, they get buried, right? That's why the poem was written 150 years ago. It's not a new feeling. This is human nature. So those things get buried. You need something to, to remind yourself that they're there or they never happen. And what happens is 76% of people end up getting to the end of their life and their single biggest regret is not living their ideal self. So that means that three quarters of the population gets to their deathbed, looks back and thinks, fuck, I blew it. And so in order to not be in the 76% and get in the minority of the 24% that, you know, feels good at the end of their life, which is, it's heartbreaking that that many people feel like that. And ultimately that's like why I speak is because I want more people to get into the minority that is content. And when they look back in order to do that, you need to build accountability around your personal goals or then it will never happen because there's deadlines for every other goal set in our lives. 
but for, you know, for work goals, KPIs, quarterly goals, life goals, health insurance payments, car repairs, other people's birthdays, always a deadline for personal goals. There's no deadline. So we have to create self-imposed deadlines by creating accountability and creating a list. Writing down your goals creates accountability. Sharing your goals creates accountability. And having an, an accountability buddy, you're 77% more likely to achieve your goals if you have an accountability buddy. You're 42% more likely to achieve your goals just by writing them down. You've got a whole list of basically the six steps to achieving a dream. Mm-hmm. And it's write down your goals, change your vocabulary from dream to project, tell people what you want to do, be persistent, be audacious, help others. Yeah. Pretty bulletproof. Well, <laughs> it definitely helps. Yeah. I don't know if it's bulletproof, but... I mean, I think if you actually commit to it, it is. Yeah. The I help so. others one is what really struck me the most. And I know that's been a hallmark of really everything you've done. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the one that people forget about the most. Yep. And I'm just curious to hear from your perspective how you feel that piece of it has helped you get to where you are today. It is why I'm here today. This is just, that's just the bottom line. There's a couple of reasons why giving is key to your own success, which I think is not a selfish way to look at this because ultimately we all want to be fulfilled. And when you give, you get a sense of fulfillment that's greater than when you do something for yourself. It resonates in a way that I think is deeper than doing something for yourself. And what I mean by that is that when you die, you will not forget those moments when you stepped into someone's life and made a meaningful impact. That shit sticks with you. The time that you went to Machu Picchu or jumped out of an airplane or might, might not, but the stuff when you really make an impact and change someone's life in a, in a small way that ends up in the long term really making a large impact sticks with you. So the, the fulfillment side is real. When you help other people and other people see you out in the world helping other people, they want to help you. So that's karma, right? That's the, that's the secret is that people are more inclined to help you when, you when you're helping other people. This idea of giving is you're not taking necessarily time away from pursuing the things that you're doing. It's not like it's a linear uh if you think about like your path being you're moving towards your goals and then giving is moving you backwards, it's, you know, it's obviously not that linear. And so I just think it's, it's something that people um, sometimes might forget about. And I've just been lucky enough to experience it. And so I sort of have a, a number of times to sort of realize like, wow, this is, this isn't just important. It's critical mm-hmm. to actually achieve your big dreams. Yeah. I feel like energy is a boomerang, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you put that out there, it's going to come back to you. Even if that's not what you're seeking out, it just happens. Totally. Like just remember where, when you were, you know, just starting to try things and, and how like one person just did something that was really small that ended up changing your life. And it's, that happens all the time. And you don't know what that will actually be and how that will impact someone. But though that type of ripple effect always happens. You, you just have to shift someone's trajectory by a very small amount to make a 
very meaningful impact in their life long term. And so there's this incredible ripple effect when you help someone because you don't just help that person, you help the people around them, right? You help their friends, their family. Sometimes you help every single person that comes into contact with them. And then, of course, there's the ripple effect that happens when you pursue the thing that you're truly wanting to do, being the person you truly are, you know, going after your bucket list or your dreams or what have you, because you're triggering other people to say, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, I wonder what I can do. Maybe I should try writing my own magazine or playing the guitar or reaching out to my mom that I haven't talked to in a long time. And, you know, that that's a real, a very real impact that you have just by doing, going after your goals. Right. And the other one I love on here is tell people what you want to do, because that one is huge. I realized recently that everything I've ever done in my life, like anything I've manifested, quote unquote, has been because I told people like in college, I went around saying like, I'm going to be an intern on the Ellen show. I didn't know anyone who worked on the Ellen show. I didn't have any reason to think I could do that. You know, like it was like a one in a million shot. But then this one guy happened to have a friend who was a production assistant, then got promoted to production coordinator like one day before I applied, put my resume to the top of the list, and I was in L.A. a week later. You know, it's it's amazing what can happen when you just tell someone what you want to do. And so I think that I've been too shy to do that a lot of times in life. I've, I've only like dipped my toe in that. If someone has a dream on their heart, how can they start? forming the sentence to say, I want to do this and asking for help. Totally. I mean, it's a really good question. I think it's really important because I think we need to identify the difference between real fear and imagined fear. Mm -hmm. What is it? So most people don't talk about their goals because they're afraid of what other people might think or they're afraid of failure. So fear is the number one thing that holds us back. So we can break those down separately. The fear of what other people might think. Very common fear. I have it. It's, it's very natural to feel that way. The truth is, is that people just don't think about you as much as yeah. you think they do. And they're more accommodating than you think. And the reason people don't think about you as much as you think is they're too worried about what other people think of them. So this idea of worrying what other people think is kind of a made-up fear. Like real fear, if you look like Maslow's hierarchy of of needs, real fear is like if you don't have shelter, if you don't have safety, if you don't have um, a sense of well-being, like these basic pillars of wellness, as long as those are covered, all other fears are created. So the fear of failure is also a made-up fear if you have those basic needs met because there's really, if you think about it, There's two types of failure. If you don't go after your dream because you're afraid or you're waiting for the right time, you failed. You didn't do your dream. That's a failure. Well, the failure that comes along with trying and failing, what you learn far outweighs any potential hit to your reputation, which is potential. And failure is is really, it's you pivoting towards success or as you said, if you realize this is actually not going to happen, you then pivot to something else. But everything that you learn from that experience, you apply to your next thing in every single way. So the fear of what other people might think and the fear of failure, you know, for the most part are, are manufactured fears. When I, I mean, I speak 50, 100 times a year, I still get nervous every time 
that fear will never go away. But I know that that is just a natural feeling that happens when I speak. And I also know that it's also partially excitement. So anxiety and excitement are very similar feelings. So if I'm like, I'm anxious about this, I just tell myself, wait, I'm actually excited. So I know that those feelings are happening. And, but as long as you can kind of disassociate yourself, be like, well, wait a second, why am I really afraid to talk to people about my goal? Am I, am I worried that if I fail, they'll think poorly about me? Am I worried that they might think it's a stupid dream? Am I worried about failing and looking bad? And if, 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 that's, if that's why, then, you know, you can just sort of keep in mind those things because you simply, you, no one can help you if you don't talk about your goals. So true. So it's like, and we can't it, do it without help. You can't do it without help. Like you can, tr- you can, you can do it on your own. It's just a lot harder. It's going to take a lot longer. It's going to take a lot longer and it's going to be a lot more trying. And also wh- it, it doesn't make any sense because any other time we come against a challenge in work, what do we do? If we hit a roadblock in work, what do we do? We talk to our boss. We call a colleague. Hey, have you ever been through this before? What did you do? What would you suggest that I do? We collaborate. We bring it up in a team meeting. We troubleshoot. We, you know, research and maybe call someone else out of the blue that maybe has, has, has done this before. Why would we not do that when we're going after our own goals? That's what you do to accomplish uh, a challenge. <laughs> it's just a lot easier when you use the resources around you. And then you're talking about something that's not a, even a work thing. This is like the most important thing to you. People are probably going to help if you go about it in, in a very honest way. You know, you want to be intentional about it. So if you want to write a book, well, share it with someone that you think might know an author, you know, or, or share it with, you know, people that might know someone at a a, a publication house, you know what I mean? So you can be smart about the way that you share. And by the way, you can just share it and just sort of like you did with Ellen. <laughs> like ultimately, you don't, you never know who might know someone that might know someone. You're definitely not going to know if you don't talk about it. Right. That's great advice. So you've spoken about your speaking career a couple of times. That's actually how we met. My mm-hmm. dad saw you, was enthralled and made the connection And I'm really interested to see how you parlayed your TV experience and your producing into what you're doing now with public speaking. Good question. I don't know. (laughs) No clue. I mean, well, I guess it's because it's been a pretty untraditional path to speaking, right? So we, we did the show, we did a book, and we started a production company after we did those two things to really, like, as you said, what would you... What advice would you give to someone that's trying to create their own thing, especially through television and maintain? That's what we do with our production companies. We find people that have really good ideas and help them maintain that control. And so I did a TEDx talk in, you know, three years ago. I watched it. Highly recommend. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it's only 12 minutes long. Start the day off right. <laughs> exactly. So I did a TEDx talk and that was the first time I'd ever been prescriptive in any way. So I was kind of like, well... I think we, I've learned some things over the last 10 years and we never want to be prescriptive and tell our friends how to live their life. So we just would just ask the question, what do you want to do before you die? And show them how fun it was to live that way. And then that was it. But uh, so it was the first time that I did that and people seemed to respond to it. So I got invited to speak and a little more and, and ultimately it got to the point where I just started speaking full time. There's a couple things that I really 
enjoy. One is, I mean, a lot of what I talk about is, is deeply rooted in mental health and happiness. And so I, I think there's a really strong tie between a bucket list. And I think a bucket list is a very um, digestible entryway into mental health. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are unhappy because they're just not simply doing the things that they really want. And I think this is a good way to start to create a framework that actually helps you achieve those things. You know, whether it's like the five steps to make the impossible possible, which is sort of like what you noted, it's like, write it down, share it, persist, take moonshots and give like all those things are, you know, really important to drive yourself forward and create the accountability. I mentioned that 76% of people get to the end of their life and regret the things they didn't do, not the things they did. That came from a study at a Cornell with a psychologist named Tom Gilovich. And so once I learned about this study, I just thought, you know, maybe I can help remind people uh, because this is clearly, it doesn't matter what age you are, you know, what you've done in your life. This is something that creeps up on us. It really is human nature to bury these personal goals. And I find this a welcome reminder. And so that's, you know, essentially what I speak about, kind of giving people that jolt of a reminder and then helping them build the accountability around their personal goals so they don't forget about them. And to kind of weave in the conversation about mental health and help break the stigma around mental health and give people tips to actually bring themselves up when they feel down, give resources of where they can go to have conversations, to get support if they're supporting others that are caring for people with mental illness. Every 15 minutes, someone in the, in the U.S. takes their own life. So it's over 120 suicides a day in the U.S. alone. And so that's an overwhelming statistic. You know, that's something that we, it feels almost too much to broach or even know what to do to help. And I think that what we can do is help break the, the stigma around mental health by having these types of conversations, um, but also to start spreading the awareness of what actually can, can help you when you feel like this. And they're very accessible things, you know. I think that it's, whether it's, you know, helping break the stigma around therapy. Um, I love therapy. Yeah. Totally. It's the best thing ever. Right? I, I try mean, to talk about it like every episode. Oh my God. Totally it life changing. Like, I don't, this, some stuff doesn't, I just don't understand. Like you wouldn't try and play basketball without a basketball coach. So why would you go about the biggest game of your life without a coach, you know, if you can, if you can have access to one, right. There's obviously a barrier to entry because it's expensive. And but there are clinics that there are people trying to get their hours and they do it for very low price or for free. There are ways around it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, a, it's a myth that it can't be achieved. If I you agree. are low income. I agree. I think that it's, it's, there's, you can absolutely be creative. Yeah. Um, there are barriers for I think sure. There's, yeah. There still are barriers. Uh, yeah. Potential solution is, talking with someone that you love. I think that's a good place to start. But there are also non-profit. I mean, there's, you know, crisis text line is a place where you can text for support in any, any time during the day. You get immediate response. You know, that's for a moment of crisis. There's communities like the Mighty Mental Health where you can, there's a, it's a safe, supportive community for people that are struggling with mental health or those that care about mental health. There's, a new 
platform on jack.org, which is a Canadian charity, which is all resources for those that are helping people coping with mental illness. Like it's going to be the most extensive resource in the world in terms of that, that type of platform to go to if you need help helping people, which by the way, one in four people struggle with mental health. So, you know, we all care about more than four people, I would assume. So we're all affected by this directly or indirectly. So really that is like why I, I speak is because once I understood the dire situation that we're in and I thought perhaps I can, by telling my story, give people the permission to talk about it, but also maybe veer them away from that path down to suicide. Like I can, if, if that's the case, I can probably get over myself and like tell my story. Cause I never talked about my depression before, you know? And even like when I started speaking two years ago, I didn't talk about it fully. I, and now it's like the thing I talk about first and it used to be really difficult for me. Now it's not difficult for me. Now I look forward to doing it because I can see that it's an opportunity for me to make an impact. I can see the impact as it's happening. And I know that this thing that I thought was my weakness is actually my strength. And I think that if people begin to understand that this thing they're, they're, they're the most afraid of can actually be this real strength and, and a tool it changes the power dynamic that you have with this this thing that you're hiding. And I think you have to be in a place that you feel okay before you talk about it. I don't think that you necessarily want to put yourself out there if you don't feel like you're emotionally stable enough to do so or you're not at a point with this thing that you're grappling with where you can. But you have to start somewhere and where it starts is with a therapist, where it starts is with um, someone that you love and... And I think there's a lot of different things you can try. You can, you know, gratitude is, makes a huge difference. If you want to change your life quickly, say thank you before you go to bed and thank you when you wake up. Uh, I use meditation when I can't sleep. And I use meditation, you know, almost every day just to bring a sense of well-being and calm and that type of thing. Sleep is by far the most important thing you can do for your own mental happiness fitness mm, yeah what do you do when you're like waking up in the middle of the night this is a very personal question yeah. but like i keep recently like waking up at 3 a.m and it's because starting a new project and i'm sure there's a lot of people listening like this it's you're just constantly on mm -hmm. how do you kind of work your way around those times horse tranquilizers should i get some <laughs> <laughs> um no that's yeah. great i mean i just think <laughs> I, I will try the horse tranquilizers or some version maybe it's uh that's not my that first so the the battle with that a lot so yeah i just said it but it, it actually is the thing that works for me the most is is meditation so like i use meditation the most as a tool versus a practice i wish i used it as a practice i'm getting better at it but i use it as a tool when i can't sleep so if i can't sleep eventually i'll sit up and i'll meditate and what will happen is, at first, I can't even feel any quiet because my head, as you said, like your mind is just going subconsciously. But slowly over time, your mind starts to slow down. You start to, you know, experience some space. And that is one way that you are really just unwinding your mind. And, and, and eventually, you are quiet. And then you lie down and then you go to sleep. So, Ben... Tell me, I know you've got your speaking and you've got your production company, but what are you excited about right now and what are you working on right now? 
So I'm excited about the Buried Life documentary that we we started, you know, 12 years ago. It's happening. <laughs> it's, ah! uh, that's right. That's I mean, so cool. It is. It's like a little exhausting because we thought it would take two weeks <laughs> to make, <laughs> and here we are with a with an uncompleted documentary 12 <laughs> years later. So, but now we finally like have the path to finishing. And, and the, the last thing on the list is number 100, go to space. So that's what we're working on to, to complete for the final list item. We've pretty much completed all 100 list items. That's going to be just like a really, I mean, that's why we started Buried Life. So that's kind of the, I think will be the, the real leap behind. And then I'm working on a book proposal that I'm excited to bring out pretty soon. So those are the two two things outside of speaking. Cool. I can't wait. 12 years in the making. It's going to be epic. In the long. actual meaning of that word, not like the fake overly excited meaning of that word. So there's something I ask everybody because I think creativity is directly linked to the inner child. So if your little Ben self was standing in front of you, five, six-year-old Ben, however you view him, and it's the two of you standing there. And he's looking at you and everything you've done. You've played basketball with Obama. You've been on Oprah's couch. You've created these shows. You've written New York Times number one best-selling book. You're a public speaker, all these things. What do you think he would say to you and why? Don't worry about it so much. <laughs> Don't worry, man. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I think that if I could dial back some of the, you know, the worry that I had have around just th this everything that I'm doing, you know, I think that it's a double-edged sword because a lot of that drives me to be successful. But I think that it was, it, it's, it's stemmed at a, at a really young age when I just, for whatever reason, put a lot of pressure. I think it was because I wanted people to like me. And so I just always wanted to do well. And so I'm learning to kind of just let that go. So I'd be, I'd probably say, Ben, chill out, man. It's all good. You'd say that to little Ben? Yeah. And what would he say to you? Little Ben would say, but I got to get good grades. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, it's okay. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. And I appreciate everything you're doing to help people. It's, um, it's really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you thank for you the for time. Me. Thank you for listening. And to my guest, Ben Nempton. For more info on Ben, follow him at Ben Nempton. That's N-E-M-T-I-N at The Buried Life. And check out his website, bennempton.com. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's original music. You can follow her at Liz Full. Thanks to my dad, Michael LaGrasso, for helping me book Ben after seeing him speak. Hire my dad to be your financial planner. He's honestly the best, and I'm not saying that just because he's my dad. He actually won Planner of the Year in the Midwest region. You can email him at michael.lograsso, that's L-O-G-R-A-S-S-O, at lfg.com. Thanks to my intern, Kate Cordova. This is her last week with the show before she goes back to school, and I really appreciate everything she brought to the table. You can follow her at CordovaKate27. And thank you. Remember to leave a rating and review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, favorite the show on Spotify, 
Take a screenshot of yourself listening and tag at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative and I'll repost it. And just do me a favor and follow your dreams because that's what would mean the most to me. Remember what Ben said, don't die with your music still in you. And the only real failure is never trying. I believe in you. Talk next week.